What's up, folks? We got a plethora of different questions in this month's office hours that I hosted a couple weeks back. Now, just some headlines here. So Blackstone, in an article last week, they said that real estate values are bottoming and that they have $200 billion of undeployed capital waiting on the sidelines. Blackstone president and COO Jonathan Gray was quoted saying, we can see the pillars of real estate recovery coming into place. We are not waiting for all the clear signs and believe the best investments are made in periods of uncertainty. Now, I don't know about you, but that reminds me of the famous Warren Buffett quote, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And if you're one of those investors out there, like a contrarian, zig when everybody's zagging, what everybody's probably going to do is wait for another 12, 36 months sitting on the sidelines because they're not connected, they're not in the deal flow, and they're just looking for reasons why not to get in there, where the pros, the sophisticated investors like Blackstone are diving in. And this is where we're starting to really start to look underneath some of these deals out there. Sure, the capital markets still aren't there quite yet, but definitely being on the lookout because this is the point where things bottom and bounce back off of it. Put a couple of these articles in the weekly newsletter that you guys can access at thewealthelevator.com slash club. I typically send that out every Tuesday of every week. The other article that I wanted to touch upon, again, the links will be in the newsletter, is an article talking about China's property slump. So over the last couple of years, apartment and commercial property sales fell by more than a third off the top. Now, I think a lot of us in the know have heard about these Chinese ghost towns. But the big difference in China and some of these other countries, you're seeing the population projected to come down in the future. You're not necessarily seeing that in America. A lot of the long-term population growth trends is, sure, it's not booming growth, but it's still growing as opposed to, again, China, where you're seeing that round out and maybe become a little bit more like Japan out there. Not a good thing if you're a real estate investor investing off of people needing a place to live. And this is why, again, these are the long-term trends, the kind of the dummy trends that are obvious out there that I like to invest in. Basic necessities, things that provide value and seemingly will provide value in the future. Now, of course, what I'm trying to do is trying to align with more sophisticated deal hunters and getting in that next level of institutional deals out there. We've come a long way since 2016, working with people who had done less than a dozen deals in the past. I think that's what's hard about being a syndication investor going out into this private equity world is it's really hard to determine the difference between sophisticated institutional investors and the new guys. The funny thing is a lot of these more institutional operators They don't want to work with little Joe who's bringing a hundred grand into a deal or even a quarter million dollars into a deal. But this is where we've discovered that if we can pool our money together and get into bigger deals with other groups of people who have a lot bigger pockets. And why do you want that to happen? Whenever there's trouble that happens, you want to be, I think, the, the smaller pockets at the big kids table and let the big kids help bail the deal out. It's the whole idea of having the ugliest house in the best location. So if you're a retail investor, you want to be around family office investors within the equity stack. Just a heads up, next month, I'm going to be giving my quarterly market update. If you guys know, I do this every quarter and we try to keep it very fact-based and allowing you two guys to see quarter by quarter, what are some of the changes and the nuances that are happening So if you're a busy investor, what I would do is go back in the archives and just go look at those quarterly videos. But anyway, it's coming up next week and we'll put it into the newsletter too. But with that, enjoy this week's Office Hours. Welcome everybody. This is the Office Hours for February. We are kicking off the Income Fund, open up for funding next week. Now, I think there's been a a lot of people running around out there saying that there's a lot of good deals to be picked up. It's, I guess it's no secret that a lot of commercial real estate prices have come down 30% across the nation. I've been on this idea where say you pick up something at $100 a couple of years ago, that's now $70. But the problem is the debt financing or what we call the capital markets. 
So the problem here is the capital markets are still in in a rough spot because, you know, as though we see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the interest rates coming down, the Vegas odds at this point based off CMG, which is a big insurance rate cap provider out there, you know, the guys who predict where interest rates are at, they're saying 90% confidence that we should start to see the first rate cuts in May of this year. So it's coming up. I have actually been seeing some dropping of some rates, but the big thing that is inhibiting a lot of buyers like us to go back into the market is the fact that the loan to value is still very low and may be low for quite some time. So at one time, you could pick up debt at 70% loan to value. So just simplistically put, 30% of that is the down payment. Now today, with higher interest rates, you have to come up with about 50% down. So as you can imagine, if you know you guys have played around with spreadsheets on your own, if you've got to put, come up with so much more money, even if you're getting a nice 30% discount, the deal economics don't work as, as well. And thus, this is why we, anecdotally as buyers, haven't been buying since, I'd say, the summer of 2022, and why other buyers haven't been buying in the market and why transaction volume is a fraction of what it was a couple of years ago, thus making prices artificially come down. But getting back to a lot of people are saying, yeah, there's prices are down. We're going to go in. That's just not something that I'm going to be doing. I just don't see those loans of values coming back. And I also don't see prices coming back. With that said, I'm taking a different approach. What kind of got me here in 2010 when I was building up my real estate holdings was just the buy and hold steady eddy, picking up property after property. Back then, I was picking up rental properties and turnkey rentals. But as we all know, the game has changed. When we were younger, we used turnkey rentals to get into the game. When I first started, I would buy these turnkey rentals at eighty, ninety thousand dollars a piece that would rent for nine hundred dollars and then it would go up to a thousand dollars, beating that one percent to value ratio in good solid areas in places like Alabama, Indianapolis, and I think a lot of you guys would be in like Kansas City, places like that. Fast forward to today, those same properties are worth about a hundred fifty, hundred sixty thousand dollars and your rents are twelve hundred dollars. But the new guy just can't get a break. It's just not going to work for them. And what I see a lot of drink purifiers selling today is some of this garbage in less advantageous areas, places like Detroit, where the rents, they might be paying $120,000, but the rents are nowhere near that $1,000 mark on these assets and in really rough areas. So it poses the question, has the ship sailed on rental property ownership? If you're buying properties, even turnkey properties in the Midwest or South, you may have to go in leading cash flow like you would buying properties in Hawaii or California. And it's part of this is a lot of institutions have gone in and become landlords taking up that space. And this is what's called the great institutionalization of investments out there. And as real estate goes, maybe they've come into little rental property ownership and push out us, the small guys, out. I'll give you another example. I've actually been looking at it in some investments in the industrial space, but the warehouse space that's used to house a lot of the mainframe computers out there. If you guys are familiar, this is a very small part of the asset class within industrial real estate. But at one time, a bunch of guys who knew computers could put these mainframes together and sell out the storage space to users. But with Amazon coming in and pretty much making giant mainframe computers and doing it at scale, it's pushed out the small guy in that type of world. But bringing this all back, what I've realized is, at least for this year, the value add type of projects moving forward without the good loan to value, it's not going to work. Sure, we'll push forward the developments as we get them ready. But as far as those multifamily value add type of projects where you're going in, you're doing a facelift on the properties, um, you know, three to five year business plan. I don't really see us really doing those types of projects. Maybe, who knows, maybe not even next year. There is a lot of tenant risks to those types of properties. Um, whereas 
What we're looking at is to just turn this more into the Steady Eddy income fund, um, where the investments are going to be more commercial grade tenants uh, and producing reoccurring income. The backing is going to be a diversified pool of commercial assets, of course, in different asset classes, industrial, office, and it's going to be more slighted on the, the triple net type of basis and also land royalty type of basis where when you are the real estate owner, the landlord, you're in a way, you're on the spectrum of kind of the highest risk. But where these are slighted on the spectrum, the land royalties, for example, gets paid before the landlord. And the triple net, that's where the commercial grade tenant, you underwrite the commercial grade tenant. And if they have a strong, stable business, now you're paving the road ahead for um, a steady stream of checks coming in. So that's what we're, we sent out the webinar for that. If you guys are interested in that, go to the.com slash income, get more info there. Let me go to the questions here. Hey, Lane, can you talk generally about diversification? I have heard you mention some rules about not going all into one or two deals but did not know if you have additional thoughts to add on to that, especially for a guy getting started from rentals to these private placements. Some high-level guidelines in, in terms of diversification is you don't want to have more than 5 or 10% of your net worth into any one asset. You know, I think that's kind of why we're focusing more on funds these days because for new investors, you're exposed right before you get in your 12th or 25th deal, right? So the funds allow to you get instant exposure into a dozen or a couple dozen assets, different geographic locations. But this is the hard part. You've already taken the step into alternative investments, but for a lot of people getting started, they might dip their toe in, invest 300, 400 grand, and that's only in three deals, four deals. Like I'm in like 80, 100 deals, and I think that's somewhat diversified. But yeah, like less than a dozen deals, I would say that's not. So you're exposed at this kind of point when you're starting in, but you got to start at some point. And this is where we overlay like where you are at personally. A $1.2 million net worth, you got to get after it. Like maybe when your net worth is two to three, we can start to talk about, let's focus more on diversification. But at this point in the game, you need to concentrate. It's the whole pros and cons versus watch the basket like a hawk, or they're talking about the eggs and diversification is a sucker's play. But after a certain point, I would say three, four million plus, then diversification becomes a bigger thing. So again, it depends on who you're talking to. Most investors are not sophisticated and they should never invest in any of this type of stuff. And therefore, they should just diversify with whatever Vanguard's going to sell them. But that's not obviously our clientele here. And but that's where everybody is on their own. And, and I stopped giving financial advice because that's how I get, people get upset with me. But that's where you have to find your own personal level of buy-in. What most people will do, like the way they'll use us is they'll do the syndication e-course. They'll maybe take a look at the infinite banking e-course. And I would say that takes most guys eight to 10 hours to do. It's a lot of content there. And I would say you would know more than most accredited investors out there. So have the confidence. But then comes that community aspect, right? Because up until that point, you just know what you're looking for. And you're probably just finding the good internet marketers at that point. And I was there at one time. You step on landmines when you start to do that. That's where like we are, we're one of the bigger groups out there. Like we've raised over $200 million of capital and $2 billion of assets. Most people are like a fraction of the size we are and, and people know about us. So we always have to keep the doors shut to some extent, but we do allow you guys to test drive one event. If not, my family office FOOM member guys get upset with me because they pay for the community. But that's like the one opportunity you guys get to see behind the curtain if this is all real. But other than that, there's nothing. The local reels are just a bunch of broke guys. Bigger Pockets is just a bunch of broke guys too. And then all the meetup groups are just a bunch of young general partner wannabes trying to get started after they spent 30 grand for training. And now they're trying to find other passive investors. And that's where we operate a little bit behind closed doors to some extent because of that. A general question. So I'll take this a few ways, but how do we approach taxes in our investment strategies? I guess probably coming from a newer investor where they're seeing 
a little bit different strategies come from us where I think on the outside, in, the, in your normal personal finance world, a lot of the strategies are predicated on deferring your taxes in tax deferred accounts, such as IRAs, 401ks. The problem there is you're stuck with the normal options where you're paying high fees and then there's a lot of carried interest. This is my aha moment that happened when I first owned a rental property. It must have been around 2012 when my rental was off and going. I was like, wait a minute, look at all the money I'm making from all these, the cash flow, the tenants paying down my mortgage, I'm getting the equity build up and the appreciation that's happening. It's an old video that I have on the website somewhere, but I did the calculations and just with a simple rental property, I was making 20% plus returns on my money. Granted, there was a slight trade winds on my back, right? As we saw from 2010 to 2022, the cap rates were steadily coming down, which means that prices were steadily increasing over that time, which right now it poses that same type of environment that we're, you're seeing a nice uptick in the market over the next several years. I looked at the money I was making. I was like, why am I putting my money in the 401k type of stuff? It's not, that stuff isn't really growing. And for people who've worked with financial planners in the past, you look at on the long run, how much has my money been growing? You see the magic of Wall Street, which is the magic is that they take your money in hidden fees where you take on all the risk. And this is where that aha moment was for me is if I just do this on my own or get on this more alternative investment path, more specifically get on the, the path of where I'm the operator or I'm more investing directly with the operator and cutting out all these middlemen, I'm going to be able to keep a lot more of my returns that should be going to myself. So you get into this world of alternative investments. And now I think some people will have money in their 401ks, IRAs. Now you can use something like a solo 401k or a self-directed IRA. I, I would normally suggest a solo 401k for a few reasons that we won't get into here. But that's be a way that now you're able to self-direct those funds into alternative assets. Basically, get the training wheels off of the money. Allow yourself to, like what the term says, self-direct it into what you want, as opposed to stuck in the cafeteria of junk options out there. So getting back to taxes, right? Like now when you're investing in things like real estate, or I guess I didn't mention the tax file fund that we have where you invest in equipment such as ATM machines it makes a nice little return. But the big thing there is that you're able to extract the losses there from Section 179 equipment losses. So when you're doing that, now you're able to stockpile huge amounts of passive activity losses on your 8582 form. And if you guys don't know how much you have, check out your last tax return, Control F. 85, 82, and figure out how much you have. But if you haven't been investing too heavily in syndications and private placements in real estate or going into Section 179 deals with equipment losses, you probably don't have a huge reservoir of these. Once you do, once you start to invest more, as I did when I moved more into this world, you, know, you start to develop this big reservoir. And this is where you use those passive losses to offset other passive income in those investments and other investments within your portfolio by doing a pooled strategy. Now we're getting into working with better CPAs, accountants that can understand that basic concept of pooling your investments together so you're able to use the passive losses to offset other investments. We run into it all the time. Investors, their CPA says something like, you got $30,000 of losses from this investment. And they're like, how did and then maybe you're a bad investor because you, you lost $30,000. But as soon as they say something like that, red flags should go off because, hey man, $30,000 loss was a paper loss from the depreciation. But a guy like that, they'll probably say, you can only use that to offset the losses on that particular investment, which is not the case. And of course, I'm going to caveat saying that I'm not a CPA, I'm not a tax attorney. That said, if you guys do need referrals, let us know. We can connect you with people that do speak this language and are looking out for your best interest in using these strategies. Not really an aggressive strategy, I would say, but using it to your advantage. Now you take it to the next level. Passive losses offset passive income. 
but a lot of you folks have huge amounts of W-2 income or 1099 income, which is categorized in the bucket of ordinary income. So ordinary income, a lot of people building their net worth, you need ordinary income. Unfortunately, ordinary income is in a different bucket that you can't use the asset losses to offset it. Unless you're implementing a strategy such as real estate professional status. And I think a lot of you may tune off, but when I talk to a lot of you, maybe half of you guys should really think about talking to your CPA and pushing this thing through as maybe you have to buy a little rental property or if you can't qualify because both of you and your spouse work full-time jobs, maybe do a short-term rental loophole and kind of keep doing that. Some kind of cool idea that came up the other day. I don't know if this works. Maybe talk to your own CPA about it is if, what if you had like a quadplex and you can just every year turn that unit into a short-term rental and then unit into a short-term rental, do it again for four years. And maybe if you run the cycle again, I don't know. This is the way I think we want to get investors to start thinking and being creative in these types of ways and understand the basics. And a lot of that is found on some of the, the content on videos at thewealthelevator.com slash tax. But understanding the concepts and then working with your CPA as opposed to them leading the blind here. I think a big part of what I see going wrong with folks is that they don't build the base layer level of knowledge to have a good conversation with their CPA. And then they could get bamboozled into doing it the old conservative way. So that's the name of the game here. And, and in terms of the income fund will have losses associated because you will be equity holders in those investments. We had a different a question here. Some people are looking at preferred equity deals or debt deals out there. And those particular deals are categorized as debt versus equity. So when you're an equity holder in like the income fund, you get the associated passive losses coming from that or the tax benefits. So to answer the question again, if that's new to you, so whatever you invest in any type of deal, real estate, or I've actually been joining, actually joined the local venture capital angel group out here, just to look what else is out there in terms of deals, right? Like I, I think a lot of this and myself included I've fallen in love with real estate over the last decade, but things change. You need good leverage to have real estate really perform. That said, the income fund is set up using low leverage. Some of the deals are less than 50%. Some of them don't use any debt at all. So for some of you guys who are more risk adverse, debt averse, let's say that the income fund is really up your alley. When any types of deals, you're going to have a debt arrangement or a equity arrangement, whether you're investing in a tech startup, a dentist franchise, or a multifamily apartment. So that's, I think, one of the first thing investors need to identify, because the big difference is when you're an equity investor, normally it's a little bit more riskier, but you have the upside there. But from a tax perspective, what we want to highlight is you typically have the losses that come from the investment flow to you personally. Whereas in a debt investment, you have most cases like a fixed rate of return based off of the asset. And in that arrangement, you don't have any of the losses coming to you because technically you're an equity holder. You're just a money lender. You're just lending money in that case. Did, did that question makes sense to you. Maybe we can get into a nice conversation here about self-directed IRAs. I'm a huge fan of them, but why don't you go ahead? I just posted the question about recommendations for a good self-directed IRA custodian, but the traditional custodians don't offer self-directed options. And there's looking at comparisons between different uh, other custodians who do offer it. I would always say don't get a self-directed IRA. I would go more for a solo 401k where you have checkbook control. One of the reasons why is obviously like you have control over your money in that case. As we've seen, I think a couple of years ago, they were really making life really difficult for self-directed IRA people that they'll threaten things like you have to get an appraisal on all your assets, which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Like it costs like a thousand or a few thousand dollars and you don't have a lot of those restrictions or those guidelines 
in that 401k type of plan. It's using okay. two different sides of the tax code to get effectively the same thing to simplify it. But I would go down that path. So then you can roll over your traditional uh, IRA into a solo 401k? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, so here, here's the deal, right? These guys all do the same thing. They're all selling commodities here. And the problem is you don't know how well they are with customer service at the end of the day. But then again, you don't really need it very much because if you were to do one of these ends, you guys aren't going to be like going in and assets like all the time, right? It's that said, when you do make a $50,000, $100,000 investment, it, I'll, I'll tell you, it's an absolute pain. I feel bad for you guys because you have to do all this paperwork and the self-directed company has absolutely no help. Sometimes they like make us fill it out for you guys. And it's, we're not doing, we're not the ones that mess up your paperwork. But yeah, that's where not only for the tax reasons and if the tax winds change here or there, the 401ks are a little bit safer play. But you just better off having own control so you don't have to ask mom and dad and get a whole bunch of paperwork done when you make a little investment here or there. I guess then the question would be, do you have a recommendation for a solo 401k provider? Yeah, we do. They change from time to time. Just shoot us an email and then we can get you connected. Okay, will do. But that is, it's not really a custodian. It's more of a person who just makes the legal documents for you and then you're off on your own, right? So it's a little bit different format. I think the, okay. the problem there is with those solo 401ks, technically you need to have a business, but this is where I would just talk to those solo 401k guys and think the workaround is you're in the business now of investing your money. That's the trigger to having a 401k for that. This is like a bigger picture and maybe it's more personal finance and may apply to everybody here, but for most people under $2 million net worth, I think you need to go the path that I personally did, was, which was scrap all your 401ks and retirement accounts because you just frankly don't have enough money and you need to concentrate that money to invest cash to get the tax benefits today, to pay little no, no taxes today, to grow your net worth over a certain number. So I don't know where you're at, but I'm just saying that there's a divide here. Now, certainly when your net worth goes over four to $5 million and you have ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 plus per month of passive cash flow coming in, then yeah, you're obviously not going to be spending money in your lifetime, which is crazy to think about. And at that point, you want to fund a self-directed IRA, a Roth IRA, a solo 401k, because you're not going to use that money in your lifetime. It's what we call legacy money. Money that's going to just be passed down the generation. You're not going to use the money nor the cash flow coming from it. I'd like to dig into more because I feel like most people that goes over their head and, and you guys just simply look at, all right, where am I going to get some money to invest, right? But some thought needs to be put into more long-term or where you're now that you may want to get money from elsewhere or pull your money from these qualified retirement plans and pull it to cash today because you don't have enough money and you need to concentrate your money into investing today. Then investing at a literally two buckets, your legacy long-term stuff, which is your retirement accounts and your cash today. And I think this exposes the issue in personal finance 101 that we've all gone through is which is invest in your retirement plans the problem with that, other than the fact that you're stuck with garbage investments, is that stuff grows for you for retirement and it keeps you not funding your today, your cash flow today bucket. So you don't have money to regenerate today to get hit retirement. And so you have to keep working your day job forever, as you can see in this predicament. And then when you finally get to retirement age, then you have somewhat of a retirement. I guess that's why in Financial 101, that's why they teach it this way because most people will not have anything. And the 401k, these retirement accounts, they're a little bit difficult to get the, the money out. It's not illegal. It's not like anything that a smart guy who can spend more than four hours figuring out the paperwork can do. But for most people out there, they just can't do it. 
Just like how some, a lot of people out there just can't save $5,000, $10,000 to save their life. So I guess this kind of loose piggy bank has created the situation where people put money away and therefore the government doesn't bail these people out when they hit ages 60, 70, and 80. So I get why it is. But again, this is where all a lot of us get caught in this crosshairs where the, the system is created in this way and it just really makes things really difficult for us. And this is where you need to look at where you are in terms of net worth. And if you, yeah, if you are three, four, five million dollars plus, then yeah, you need to be strategically throwing money into these legacy plans. I would also argue that there's a layer above that once you hit five, $10 million, these plans are in a way get abandoned and you start to build other buckets of legacy wealth, such as PPLIs, captive insurances, rollover business startups. These are the other more tools that you can use when it gets higher to completely shelter taxes for the next generation with those types of things. But if your net worth is under $3 million, forget I said any of that. And you may have to take your IR-401k money and invest it cash today. Because like I said, you need to get the concentrated returns of today going. And you need the tax benefits today to pay the bill to the tax to get your net worth to that level. But I don't know, any feedback there, or did I just confuse everybody? No, that's actually perfect because that's the situation that I'm currently finding myself in to figure out what's the best way to find the cash to, to invest and to take advantage today versus just keeping it in a deferred account where I'm at the mercy of either the custodians or a solo 401k and cannot take advantage of all the losses by real estate investments. Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll give an analogy. It's, and this is maybe some tough news for some people who are under a couple million dollars net worth. But it's imagine a game of like chess. What do they tell you in chess? Don't take the horses and the king and queen out until the second half of the game. In a way, those chess pieces are like your retirement accounts, these QRPs, these Roth solo 401ks, and just like the financial 101 mindset. Invest through those accounts, leave them alone to your retirement. Going back to the chess board analogy, you're up against Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer is going to beat you. He's better, he's smarter. And if you want a chance to do something here, you got to pull those pieces out early. Get them on the board. If not, he's just going to pick apart all your pawns and come after your queen and king. He's just going to mop you up. And depending on where you're at, right? If you're a chess player, you got to bring out the kings and queens. You got to invest the 401k stuff. If you're a good player, you play more traditionally. And in this world, I if your debt worth is over two to three million dollars and you already have that ten thousand dollars of passive cash flow, yeah, we may look at this, your your personal situation, and be like, Yeah, let's continue to invest cash outside of your retirement accounts, but let's have a little bit of retirement account money going for you. And this is where I personally I made this mistake. I very early on I pulled my kings and queens and horses and in 2015, I think, around there, I was investing in real estate at that time. I knew that this was the way to do it. So I pulled my 401k Roth IRA and I brought it to cash. Obviously, I grew that and I'm glad I did it. But there was a certain point along the time horizon where I'm like, it might be nice to have a little $50,000 in my Roth to have that grow tax-free so I can be like a mini Mirk Romney who has like millions of dollars in those accounts. Now I'm still young and I can still fund one of those things, even if I have high amounts of income. So that's no problem. I guess that's like just an example of as I progress, like I couldn't look back and you see how things you could have done better. But then without that perspective of kind of being in that next level, the next level, or to use the, the wealth elevator construct, unless you're on the third floor penthouse level, perspective isn't there. And then of course, then there's other strategies, right? Like PPLI, captive insurance, those types of things that are beyond that then it becomes like, how do we bridge the gap? For some investors out there, you may skip directly to those more advanced strategies and even do solo 401k or not even do a nonprofit type of charity, make your trust type of arrangement. But that's where 
I've always said, hey, sometimes I change my mind. I say, find something better. This is a choke blazing world, right? There are people out there I try to get around that are second, third, fourth, fifth generation millionaires. What we are as a group here are first generation millionaires trying to get up to that level. But in a way, we're trailblazers. We don't know very many people who have done this in it within this era. And I think that's what makes us very special. And I talked to my office earlier this week, and those investors are very different than us. The way that they think in some respect, they think very differently in terms of their investments than people under $5 million net worth do. But I think that's the whole point of this whole wealth elevator, right? Is to figure out the best way to get from not the basement, from the, the first floor, a guy who may be an accredited investor or an accredited investor and get them to that next level. Any other questions? Oh, another thing, a tell on that self-directed IRA. If you really want to go the self-directed IRA, I use another firm. I don't know if they're around anymore, but the, the, the little industry, dirty little secret is a lot of these guys will white label another company and just slap their branding on top of it, which is pretty common, I think, in the financial world. You'll see that with some like legal documents with legal promoters pushing some of these trusts out there as intellectual property. And it's the same document. It's just a different salesman. Like I said, the self-directed IRA custodian is a very commodity service. Some of these guys will just, any people who know businesses will know that a lot of it is just the marketing and branding around it. And then the sales, they'll white label a provider. So if you can find who that provider is, you'll find like the no frills, cheaper option, which is the same servicer at the end of the day. But I don't know. I don't in self-directed IRA. So I've been outside of world a little bit. Right, Pat? I'm just getting tacked up ready. I need a better CPA. And I always keep telling you that. So I would like for you to hook me up with someone that I can discuss a longer range. Yeah, just, yeah, just shoot us an email. We'll, we'll make that connection for you. I will I've, do that. I've, I think you've been in this world quite some time, right? Like you start to see these guys on either message boards or like oh, God. podcasts or YouTube. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of those guys... They've grown their businesses past a certain point where they're just more, I'm not going to say the name, but he's just like marketing his, his CP uh, referral board right now. But a lot of these Funny. like CPAs, I've used them all. Like they'll just use like overseas staff, which is, I think, great, right? Like I think a lot of the overseas staff are way better. It's like we were talking about this in my business mastermind. You know, what you want as an employer is dedicated employees as opposed to the, these millennial Americans, maybe I'm just getting old, that say that are on YouTube telling each other that they need to move jobs every two years to get the most amount of pay, which they're right. But as an employer, I, I thought that was messed up. <laughs> um, yeah. That's what the overseas folks, um, you get a lot of people who care. Well, to, yeah, I I need somebody that understands really complex situation as in having millions of dollars in real estate in a C corporation, which is how I bought it, knowing that, but getting it out and getting the money out of legacy and into cash flow so I can enjoy my next decade or so. And that's, that's not your common CPA knows how to do this. So... Mine, the government's going to take all of my money when I go at the present time anyway. So I need more sophisticated planning. And that's not something, Tom, I shouldn't name him, but he's just the one that comes to mind. I'll do a lot more investing with you because I, I really like your, I like your attitude. Uh, the split at the end, that's something I think that you really offer value to people. The 70-30, which is typical you negotiating 80-20 and that sort of thing. I like that. And I like the fact that you're in a, a preferred position. And I like the fact that you negotiate higher press. Hey, something came to mind, right? I'll send you a video on EPLI so to wrap your head around it. But it's essentially like the next level of infinite banking. And it's for the, the folks at net worth five to million plus. But okay. it might be something that it might be the tool for the situation here. So I'll send you that video and then uh, I'll connect you with that guy. But here, I think this is the takeaway for other people listening here. 
And this is how I do it, right? When you find these more advanced strategies, those people, they work with different people, right? They work with 10, 20, $100 net worth clients, not little guys that are under $5 million. They have a different circle of colleagues. And this is essentially the, what I do, right? This is my little secret. I get around those types of people and I build relationships with them. But I would say, I'll connect you with this guy. But when you're in there, start to ask that question. Hey, I got a kind of complicated tax situation here. You got a guy, right? And then go from there. Thank you. And this is where net worth plus connections get you into different worlds. And for people that are under four or five million, it's just, unfortunately, we know the trick, right? Which is that, that triforce of, get into alternative investments to get some more passive losses to pay a lot less in taxes, do a little infinite banking, do those three things. But it's not a get rich quick scheme. It takes a while. But that said, I would say it takes a third amount of the time it would have taken most people and most people to get the financial freedom once they put their head on their shoulders over a million dollars net worth, maybe take them 20, 30 years. But I think when you start to like systematically apply these three strategies, that's where you get things to expedite things along third of my time. I feel at least it's worked for me. In I appreciate hooking me up with some of these people to talk with them. We'll see you next time on Florida. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I guess maybe a time for one more. Lane, again, <laughs> regarding uh, this topic about CPAs, I attended the, the webinar with Unified Global. I had a chat with them and also had a couple of other local CPAs. Our local CPAs are really difficult to find who have this level of uh, understanding of real estate. But you mentioned something about overseas staff and Unified Global seems to have quite a few overseas staffers. What's your perspective overall in leveraging somebody that has primarily overseas staff? It comes with lower cost, but I'm sure there's, I definitely have concerns about handing all my finances over to somebody overseas. They're going to do it anyway. All the big firms do it. All the big, even the big fours. The, actually, the big four is always taking unified staff. In reality, once they train them up, and that's oh, and, and I guess yeah. that was to my earlier point. Like the problem that I have is like when I was working with some of these other guys, is that they charge me like American rates, hundred fifteen hour, when they just are white labeling. See this game, this word again, white labeling. There's white labeling other people. So I think the arrangement that is optimal is you have the back of house staff overseas, but the front of house staff American to interact with you and essentially just be client manager, project manager types. No different than how I do things like the podcast stuff, a lot of behind the scenes, it's overseas people, right? But the in, in front staff, if you guys notice, are all American that you guys interact with. It costs an arm and a leg, but you guys don't want to talk to somebody overseas. And engineering firms do this too. A person doing yep. CAD is American. That's not a company yes. you want to be working with because they're just paying an arm and a leg and passing the cost off to you. Yeah, that, that I think is understood. I was comparing more uh, with a, a local CPA, not a big firm, but a small firm, or maybe five to 10 people who are doing everything here. Their costs are much higher, three bucks an hour. But at least everything is here and maybe they're local. So you can go and tap them on the shoulder. <laughs> but so that's what I was comparing with. But yeah, I understand the large firms will definitely send everything overseas for because they have so many clients, they can't handle them all locally. And it takes a good business operator to figure out what are the things we send overseas to turn and burn and get at a cheaper rate. And then what are the things that we need to keep in front of house American? And But that's where like your little mom and pa CPA firm, they're just operating in the old ages. Look at AI. AI is going to change the CPA world just like it does any other world. Those mom and pop firms are just going to get blown away. In fact, I'd really like to syndicate and buy up those aging CPA businesses and operators like that. If you want to talk about a syndication, that's buy businesses. That That's not only think awesome returns. But I think that's a no-brainer right there. But think about it. If somebody is using old school business, optimizing their staff, using some overseas, 
how are they, how's their mindset when it comes to actually doing taxes? They're one step beyond you still using their AOL.com email address. Maybe. You got you laugh, but I, a lot of you guys have those AOL email addresses. Maybe 10% of you guys. So I, I move up to Hotmail. But just kidding. Don't offend anybody here. But I, we see it in our, in my business mastermind, right? The people in these types of groups are people still growing in their businesses and slowly everybody's starting to use the overseas staff, right? Why would I want a, a flaky American who doesn't give a rip, wants to work then from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m.? Why, why do I want to pay them $5,000 a month? He's somebody who gives me a full 40 hours, that actually somewhat enjoys their work for thousand dollars a month who has a cpa license where american doesn't it just doesn't make any sense but i don't know yep, I, okay. I, I always just say like where's this country going right this country of america is just going to marketing and sales i suppose nobody's doing the work anymore just i'm just speaking for the world of professional services right we saw where manufacturing is going but yeah, I, I think the difference with the old firms, I never talked to the principal and did a sit down once a year. I think with these guys, they want to sit down. At least I use them. And so it's not like I'm telling, I'm sending you to someone who I don't personally use. And they were like, oh, Lane, we want to talk to you like four times a year. I'm like, what? I'm not comfortable with this. It seems like a little bit too much. It's like if you're in a relationship and they, you never go out on dates and all of a sudden this new person does, you're taken back a little bit. It's like how this new CPA is for me. But we'll see how they mature in the future, right? Five, 10 years. If there's one thing about life, nothing changed. Thing stays the same. All right. Thanks for coming, folks. We'll see you guys next month. If you guys can't make these, submit your questions, the team at thewealthelevator.com. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. The current offering is the income fund. I'll quickly summarize. There's going to be four investment classes based on your minimum investment. All investor classes will have 100% pass through to investors. So no carried interest there. As far as a $100,000 sample investment, this is what we've outlined as in terms of projections every single year. Starting out slow, but it is an income fund based off of land royalties and triple nets and more stable types of real estate investments, as opposed to some more of the aggressive value add plays or developments out there. If you're looking more for asymmetric type of growth, we do have some other offerings. But what a lot of investors were asking for were more secure income, lower risks that they can have their money work over the long term. They don't really have to worry about it too, too much. And then of course, get some great tax benefits. But when you look over the 10-year horizon, more than doubling your money in that time horizon and projected 135% return could do better, but we just wanted to put something out there that I think certainly beats, I think, what most people will get out there in terms of the stock market in a little bit more tax advantage way. When you break down 135% over 10 years, you're just over that 13%. Great return for these types of investments skewed on the more on the safety side. The advantages of investing through the, this fund is you're getting the advantages of investing as our group in multiple of other uh, projects, dozens of other properties, individual assets. And you could invest in these types of opportunities on your own, but by going in with us, you're getting slightly better economics in terms of splits. Some of these, you may be getting a 70-30 split, 7 pref on your own, but we as the fund are getting an 80-20, 9% pref. And also I'm the insider and kind of the leader of the fund. And I know when the time to enter and when times not to. So that's my role is to use my industry connections and knowledge to get us all collectively to the right place together. Also, some of these minimums for some of these deals are quite high, quarter million dollars or more. And that allows you investors to get the diversification of those types of deals without having to put up those minimums. You invest in this one fund and you get diversification into many. And of course, like if things were to go bad, which I've been in deals as a passive investor and general partnership where you may have some kind of issues within the general partnership, or I think that's what I we, we help investors do to navigate those 
those newer operators out there and people who go dark on LPs. My role as the fund manager is if any of that should happen. Look, I've been through it myself, gotten legal involved. I raise the charge on any of that as the fund manager. And then, yeah, by jumping in with us, you not only get better economics, but also you leverage our relationships with our partners. It's the whole idea and the concept behind our investor group is by sticking together, get better economics, but also the Groupon effect of getting a better kind of deal together. At this part in the market cycle, I think it's a great time to get involved. What we've seen in commercial real estate is prices go down 30% from a couple years from the high. And it's a pretty textbook correction at this point, where if some of you guys are newer investors, some of you guys I see on the list who's jumped on have been with us prior to 2020. At this point, if this is your entry point, I think it's a great time to be investing and jumping in. And of course, here are some asset classes where I think they are in the market cycle. But of course, every deal is different and unique. And that's where I bring my area expertise and relationships to cherry pick the best ones for this particular investment prospectus. Other investments that are already in the fund, showing a few of them here, we've got probably at least a dozen in there right now. We have individual webinars for these for you guys to view in a separate webinar. This is one of those deals that what we'll do is we'll open and close it based on availability. So it will not just be continuously open. So if you're interested in this and you really want to see what's already in the fund, let us know. We can share those resources in the deal room or our team can walk you through it and expedite you through the process so that you can secure your spot just in case it closes up for some other people. Here's a listing of current properties in there now. And of course, more to come in the future. That's a quick overview of the fund. If you haven't yet, please check out that full webinar. I think it was about an hour long. We went more in depth through this deck, 